This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, welcome to the DLR Cast, the essential podcast by and for fans of the mighty Diamond David Lee Roth. I'm Steve, as always, with my good friend and fellow Dave fan, Darren Paltrowitz. What's happening, Darren? You know, I'm pretty good here. I think that we're officially the number one David Lee Roth podcast in the world. Do I have that right? <laughs> I, I, I haven't seen the latest charts, but I will I will uh, I will guess that we are. Yes. Yeah, so if that's the, the true statistic, I'm pretty damn good, not just good. Well, let's roll. We'll roll with it, nevertheless. Uh, and we should mention we are available just about everywhere you find and download podcasts, right? I mean, we're on YouTube, we're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, um, you name it. Thanks to your hard work, we're out there. Thanks to your hard work. Thanks to everybody's hard work. And who is it that said distribution is king? Well, whatever it is, uh, yeah, we're distributed. Yes, which is perfect. So, well, we've got a great interview uh, coming up. We'll get into it in a second. But as we record this today, we do have some new Dave news. Yeah, I got that press release just like everybody else that the Dave tour opening up for Kiss is rebooked for summer 2021. It looks like the same exact routing. Uh, is there anything new that you noticed? Any additional cities? Uh, I don't think so. It starts August uh what august 18th right and um uh no wait a minute i'm sorry i was looking at rescheduled yes um august 18th it starts up next year 2021 in mansfield massachusetts and i think the only way this doesn't line up with the kiss days the only one he's not doing is atlantic city yeah that one's a little weird i've heard stuff over the years that dave and this is all hearsay that he doesn't like particular venues like for example he doesn't like Jones Beach here in New York. I don't know if that's the case of he doesn't like that venue or he had another booking that day a year and change in advance or it's a birthday. <laughs> Any idea why he wouldn't be doing Atlantic City? Yeah, I, I'll tell you, for a guy who loves Vegas so much, you would think Atlantic City would be a, a you know, a natural extension of that, right? A natural fit. I, for one, do not like seeing most rock shows and casinos, but that's that's just me. But you would think, right? I mean, he loves Vegas. He yeah. did the did the 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 residency in Vegas early this year, right? In January, that you were at one of the shows. So yeah, Two I don't know, shows, man. I don't know the what same that's exact going. Show both nights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But which I think I, we I talk about. Is- Go ahead, yeah, sorry. we talked about episodes probably one and two we, I, we wound up talking about that. But something I'm curious about here, I know this is the DLR cast, not the KISS cast, but didn't KISS's farewell show get announced as sometime in like July 2021? I thought originally, but I mean... It, was i don't even i don't remember seeing a confirmation on that i mean everything's been everything is fluid everything is pushed back i would think if they're going to end up in madison square garden uh it's right at the end of the year right unless they're still going to be touring into 2022 uh if you can wheel them out there for goodness sakes i mean (laughs) i mean really there's you know they never did what was it was it late last year early this year for whatever reason i think paul was sick they didn't do australia as long as you know the end of the road tour has been endless it seems but there's a bunch of places that they haven't they did not get to even pre-covid so uh i can see them making up 
for lost time, lost bank accounts. Uh, who knows when <laughs> it has it has to end at Madison Square Garden, right? I mean, but uh, you know, whether it's the end of 2021, I would be kind of surprised if it is. I don't think it's going to end at Madison Square Garden, to be honest. I think that it's going to end at a Yankee Stadium or a City Field or something, so that they can go kiss one out on top. I think you can guess uh, which member I'm doing a bad impression of. Kiss <laughs> came in as underdogs and we went out on top. <laughs> well, if that's the case, if they're doing City Field or Yankee Stadium, it can't be at the end of 2021 because the odds are good it's going to be 30 degrees and snowing and blowing and terrible, you know, cold weather <laughs> at the end of the year in New York. So uh, it's, you know, with Kiss, the speculation is always endless. So. And you got to remember, uh, David Lee Roth was supposed to be on the road on his own this year or with Van Halen this year. And he was teasing himself that Van Halen would be playing at Yankee Stadium. That was one of his things that let's just say you'll be seeing me where the Yankees play. So I think that Motley Crue has really changed things up in terms of farewell tours and trying to get things up to stadium level again. Yeah, that that all is going to be. Super interesting to see how that all unwinds. Uh, Dave posted today, or somebody did on his social media, uh, on Facebook. It says, can't stop, won't stop, why stop now? Hashtag DLR, hashtag David Lee Roth, hashtag Diamond Dave, hashtag End of the Road, with a cool (laughs) graphic that uh, the last tour, Roth Rocks, unless it isn't, it says David Lee Roth. It's a great graphic, that one of him with the top hat doing the kick uh, from, it looks like from one of the Van Halen shows with the bolero jacket on and the cool pants. And the dates start uh, August uh, 18th in Mansfield, Massachusetts. And they and it ends up, uh, so far what he's booked on, booked through is October 6th in Lafayette, uh, Louisiana. And a lot of these, there's Chicago, Milwaukee, there are some big uh, places, uh, but then there's some other, some smaller places like Boise, Idaho, some George uh, Washington, Ridgefield, Washington, uh, Tulsa, yeah. Oklahoma. So it's it's some of the secondary markets that he, that Kiss was probably, you know, that was slave to hit. These are all rescheduled dates. So who knows what's going to happen, happen in October. And of course, you know, Kiss has still got plenty of places internationally is still hit. It would be interesting to see if Dave will be on any of those dates if if and when they he does they do go international. If these even happen for goodness sakes, let's keep our fingers crossed for uh this yeah. you know this terrible hoax to go away, the China virus. Sorry. <laughs> that wasn't my Gene Simmons impersonation. But you know, some other speculation Gene Simmons is, of politics. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, I got to thinking too, and we'll be talking about this in the future, I'm sure, but uh, who knows what's going to happen a year from now, but will it be the same band? Will Dave go out with the same the same lineup as he did on the dates that we saw him um, earlier this year? That is a great, great question. And I have a little bit of a fan theory, and I know somebody named Steve uh, said this to me. I can't remember if it was Steve Roth or <laughs> Steve Schiltz, who is going to be on a future episode. But somebody named Steve said this to me, that the video for A Little Ain't Enough by David Lee Roth has a joke in there about the final tour in 2021. Whoa, I did not tell you that, but I know that video by heart. And yes, he comes out in this hovercraft like limousine and he's, yeah, and he's all, yes, I'm totally picturing that video right now. And there is a joke, the final tour, and it says 2021. That's right. Well, if that's Steve from Long Wave, he nailed odds? it. 
what are the odds that David Lee Roth just in his head said, oh, 2021 is going to be the final tour? And there's some significance. And just like when he didn't really disclose if he was joking or not about the cartoons with the frogs, about the changing my name thing, because <laughs> he's never really explained his intentions or his jokes. What? What are the odds that he just called outright in 1991 that in 20 years, 2021 is it? Yeah, I mean, can you imagine? Although I always love I always think that there should be a real good legalese, you know, as an asterisk when at the end of final tour. And that is, you know, uh, residency dates in Las Vegas do not count as a final tour. One off shows at corporate events do not count as a final tour, you know, (laughs) and just on and on and on, because I mean, yeah, you know, certainly Motley Crue somehow got around their own legalese. It said we're never gonna, tour, we're never gonna tour again. Well, you know, uh, but you know, th- I, for as long as these rockers keep aging, final tours tend to keep going and going and going. So, who the hell knows? Sure, I don't know. You don't know. But it's great to see that if there is a world of concerts, like we hope that there will be in the future, that. David Lee Roth and Kiss are going to be playing. It's like a four hour drive for me, but I'll drive four hours to Hartford, you know, to see two of my favorite artists ever. Yeah, I same here. I mean, it's the bottom line part in the pun. It's a great it's a great double bill. Right. We saw it. I mean, I saw it. It's 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 going to be a fun it's going to be a fun show regardless. Hopefully everybody is still uh, uh, coherent and cognizant (laughs) and rocking a year from now. Absolutely. So I think that was a bit of good news. I haven't noticed any new interviews since the New York Times thing that Dave did. Haven't heard anything from the Van Halen camp. We've heard a lot of Sammy news lately because he put out another claim that he was going to save Kurt Cobain's life. I don't know if you. Yeah. And Sammy, to his credit, have, has been doing a lot of music during the quarantine, doing, during those, you know, Zoom uh, covers and stuff with the guys in his band. With what is it, Jason yeah. Bonham and Victor Johnson, and 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 they've been doing and Michael Lanth, of yeah. course, they've been doing some cool stuff. So he's certainly been active. Dave's activity after the, you know, before and around and during, you know, and now post New York Times thing has been limited to some really cool and funny illustrations and art, which is what the New York Times interview was all about that we talked about, I know, in a previous episode. And I, (laughs) about a week or two ago, he put one out that had a great line. This sounds such like Dave, right? It said, hotels open, open rooms for homeless. And he writes, what does La Quinta mean? It's Spanish for behind Denny's. Thank you, folks. <laughs> I mean, that's just. And then he's also been posting as uh, under this kind of a newspaper like masthead, the daily catastrophe, it says 2020 and beyond. And there's an illustration. And just a couple days ago, and we're taping this August 13th. So I think it was like Monday or so. Um, hashtag soggy bottom, hashtag David Lee Roth. But he posted the daily catastrophe. It just says pro sports get started with, uh, a, you know, a funny looking sketch underneath it of him. I can't, it's tough to tell what it is. It's a cool pen and ink thing with the omnipresent bullfrog at the bottom. And uh, it looks like it looks like he's I can't, he's riding a bullfrog or something. I, I'm not even sure. It's a cool illustration. <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> he is just. You've heard it said many times by me and you, but he is just so intriguing and talented. And half the stuff he does, you don't know what the hell it means. No, it's a 
Uh, thank you, Dave. <laughs> but it's fun trying to figure it out, you know? So, And that's why we're doing this podcast, which is a perfect segue into the interview that we've got that you did with, uh, I believe, the only person who has played both with Sammy Hagar and David Lee Roth. Yeah, if we don't count Michael Anthony, Alex Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen. In I, solo career-wise, I should say. Let me give that caveat. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, the background on this one is I'm going to I'm gonna take the blame on this one. Um, you and I taped an interview, and I would say 5% of the interviews that I do over Zoom just disappear into the ether. That sometimes one box wasn't clicked, or there's a hard drive thing, and your computer says there's not enough space or something like that. And I realized, like, with 10 minutes to go in the interview, no, wait, this is this is not recording. We just got a bunch of exclusives from Jesse Harms. And so I, you know, wanted to immediately throw myself down a flight of stairs for that one. But uh, Jesse was so understanding and was available the next day, like 18 hours later, and got another interview out of it. However, you know, no Steve Roth on the line. So for That's, anyone that just doesn't listen to this one uh, because there's no Steve Roth on it, you know, <laughs> I understand. No, no, you're too hard on yourself because the conversation you had with him is fantastic. It's really cool. Jesse is a super cool guy. And I completely botched my lead. And yes, there's been other people who have played with David Lee Roth. But to the best of our knowledge, Jesse is the who played with both Dave and Sammy. But to the best of our knowledge, Jesse is the only person who played on both Dave and and Sammy solo albums, right? Yeah, yeah. Th there we that's, go. That's as far as I know because I can't think of anyone else who's from Sammy's band. The people who play with Sammy are just very different than the people who play with Dave. Uh, Sammy's got a bunch of laid-back guys, usually, <laughs> and Dave has uh, pretty people. He, In other words, Dave has people that usually look really, really cool, and Sammy <laughs> has people who can play <laughs> and i'm not well, Michael, that's not to say that the roth band can't play but uh you, you get what i'm saying there <laughs> I, I think like so monster. i think so although i mean hey sammy's always had great bands i mean anybody uh, jason bonham of course is you know beyond reproach and of course oh, yeah. he's got michael anthony in his band with him and i've seen sam before solo and uh was it victor johnson the guy can play just about anything so i mean yeah. yeah when it comes to listen nothing touches the eat him and smile band and i think if um i know when in the conversation that you and i had with him i believe jesse said the eat him and smile band because he played on the eat him and smile record i believe yeah. he said that billy sheehan steve i and greg bissonette were probably the finest musicians he ever played with he definitely said that uh, you were taking better notes than I was. Didn't he say that there was a softball league and Eddie showed up to some of the softball games to play? Yes, that's right. He There was a softball and baseball league in Southern California. And I remember thinking at the time what I would be, what I would have given to even watch, let alone play in those games. Can you imagine that, man? I mean, just you're out there. It's like. Hey, you're never gonna believe this. Who's in left field? <laughs> you know, I, it was like a rock and roll softball, a baseball event back in what was it? I think it was like around the mid '80s, around there. Um, I mean, Jesse was a super nice guy. Uh, his bona fides are beyond reproach. I mean, he w wrote uh, one of Eddie Money's biggest hits. Uh, what was it? Um, was it Walk on Walk Water? On water. Yeah. yeah. 
and just played with Ario Speedwagon, Speedwagon, tons of people. Uh, He's got a resume a mile long. He's super talented, super nice guy. And the conversation you had with him was super cool. Yeah, he did have a good Hart song that he actually co-wrote with uh, Sammy for one of Hart's albums in 89 or 90. That's right, from the Brigade album. That's right. Yeah, he was in REO, not just like as an onstage guy, but he actually co-wrote a lot of REO Speedwagon songs. A few of them he has the sole writing credit on. Yeah, he was. He, yeah, he was a full-fledged member of that band for one album, 1990s. I think it was called The Earth, The Moon, A Small Man, A Dog, and a Chicken, which I'm not going to go look that up. I am 90% sure I have about 90% of that title right. It was a long-winded title for an R. It was it was worse than you can tune a piano, but you can't tune a fish or whatever that Aria Speedwagon uh, <laughs> album You've got was. that one correct. You can't tune a piano, but you can tune a fish, which... <laughs> I don't, I don't think you ever want to have an album title that does or does not have words that could be contractions because you're always going to get the name wrong. Like, you remember that Fiona Apple album that had like a 92-word title? Oh, my God, yes. Jeez. Oh, the goodness. The one breaks, blah, blah, blah. No, yeah. Hey, so we can't put your album in any sales catalogs? Great. Great job. No, but maybe she was ahead of her time because that's probably great for SEO and metadata and all that stuff. And in in the now, you know, nowadays with websites and everything. So who the hell knows? Maybe she was ahead of her time. Yeah. All right. And so the, the credits of Jesse, as we said, he played on Edom and Smile and he talked about how that happened because of his Ted Templeman connection. We did ask him in the interview, which he didn't go into into mine, about uh, Sammy was mad when he found out that Jesse. He had played on a Roth album. That's right. He did say that, to which I was I found humorous and not surprising at all. <laughs> right. So uh, he also told a great story about how the bassist in the Hagar band in the 80s, Bill, I forget his last name, how they could tell he was in a bad mood whenever he was wearing his uh, military cap. Yes, that's right. They knew right away as soon as that hat made an appearance, stay clear. It was going to be a tough day with him. His green beret cap and all that. And uh, I'm sure in future episodes, you and I are going to be talking about something. We're going to go, oh, yeah, Jesse Harms did say that. Uh, yes. That was a story. But the, the bottom line is he was still awesome to speak with the second time. And like Mitch Schneider, he's another guy that maybe we have a part two with in the future. Uh, I think that would be great. So, well, without further ado, here is the interview that Darren did with Jesse Harms. And uh, thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. You can find, uh, well, if you're downloading this, you know where to find our podcast. If you're listening to this, you know where, you found them already. What the hell am I talking about? Yeah, but uh, it's good that we reminded them. So thank you for making us the number one David Lee Roth podcast in the world as of this week. Yeah, we got some more interviews coming up with the possibility of a couple. Uh, uh, they're getting bigger and better all the time. We got a couple possibilities. We'll just tease without saying anything further. But there's some some real good ones coming up, I think. Yeah, huge industry giants are we. Well, <laughs> well I'm having a blast. So, Darren, till next time. Till next time. All right. I regard you very highly as a songwriter, a sideman, a producer, and all these different titles where you're not necessarily the star, but you're working with the star, and you've 
worked with the star for decades now. Is there an accomplishment mm-hmm. with all that that you're most proud of? Um, well, I don't know about, uh, yeah, I would say probably the, the most complete project where, um, uh, that was a success uh, was that red voodoo album. Um, uh, because at that point, uh, I felt like Sammy and I were almost like partners. Uh, you know, if you look at what I did on that album, uh, it, we recorded that at Sammy's house up in, in, um, Mill Valley. And uh, so we were working under circumstances that were less than professional. Uh, but um, I, you know, did the pro tools on that. Uh, I, you know, Sammy would be upstairs uh, cooking dinner and I was down there recording star solos and stuff. So I feel like I was an integral part of every step of that album, not only the co-writing stuff, but um, just from overseeing uh, you know, putting like, let, let me put it this way. When you work with a singer, uh, it isn't most of the time, uh, the singer just doesn't sing the song top to bottom. And that's the take, uh, you, you sing it maybe four times and then go through it and take the best bits out of each one. And then, you know, you kind of make a compilation of the vocal and then you, you reassess it with the singer and you say, Oh, I think you could do this line better, that kind of thing. So, Really, when you're in that, when I was in that position with Sammy, who's like a big rock star, we had to be on real equal terms. I could say, hey, you know what? That's not cutting it. Or I think you can do better or no, that's good enough. Trust me kind of thing. Uh, So that, uh, you know, if if you want to look at the whole scope, uh, being a writer, a player, a producer, and uh, also working under circumstances that weren't the best circumstances in the world, I think that was the biggest uh, hall of, you know, that was the toughest road of, of, of my whole career, pull, pulling that whole thing together. And something that's incredible about your work with Sammy, which included six major tours in the States beyond all the other tours that you did elsewhere, is that you worked with him before Van Halen, during Van Halen, mm-hmm. and after Van Halen. Is there anyone else yeah. that did? I don't uh, think so. Well, yeah, well, you know, uh, I think that, that, you know, to Sammy's credit, he did realize that I was unique in a few uh, ways in that, um, you know, as a songwriter, I could, I was capable, and I did this for quite a number of people, not just Sammy, but, uh, and I'm not just patting myself on the back. I'm saying that from a songwriter standpoint, um, a lot of times you have to finish a song uh, you know, clean up stuff, stuff that uh, isn't working. And uh, a, a, a lot of people can't do that. It's like once they get stuck on a song, they don't know how to get out of the box, or, you know, to, to get to the next part or make the thing complete or round off the edges. And I w- was always really good at doing that. So a lot of the songs I co-wrote with Sammy, he would get kind of stuck. He'd come up with a verse or something, and then he didn't know, he couldn't take it to the next level or didn't want to. And so he would give it to me, and I would, you know, uh, uh, make the other part that made his part make sense and then, you know, tie it all together. So uh, I, I think that, that that's why we kept working together is, is that he appreciated that. Not, not that I got my way all the time, you know, uh, in the songs, but it was always a compromise. But but I think that he appreciated the fact that, that he got results from me. That makes a lot of sense. And a lot of people would kind of hang their hat on the fact that they worked with somebody like Sammy. But in your case, as I mentioned up top, ridden and or 
toured with all these other major artists. It's it's hard to say, mm-hmm. well, Jesse Harms is the Sammy Hagar guy because Ario Speedwagon mm-hmm. and Eddie Money and then the mm-hmm. cuts you had with Hart and Patty Smythe and all that kind of stuff. So we talked about what you're kind of most proud of, and that's that you were adaptable and you could get the greatest results out of people and talk to them like equals and peers. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, with the, just let me interject with with Sammy, see, I had a little bit of a career before him, and I never, I'm a really independent person, and I never wanted to just hang my hat on on Sammy. I appreciated being in his band. It was an opportunity to play really big venues. And be, also, you know, when I joined Sammy's band, I looked at it as, here's a guy that's a success. How do you become a success? Because the music business is really tough. I mean, people don't really realize how hard it is. It's, it's not like getting a law degree and then you, you're a lawyer. You know, you, you, every musical situation is different. The music constantly changes. You know, it only, every five years, there's something new. So you, when, just when you get good at something, all, all of a sudden you're out of style. So you really, it's, it's not easy. And so I looked at the Sammy thing. I said, wow, here's a chance to be around somebody that is a success. How do you, how do you get there? And also, you know, all the trappings of being in a big rock band. And so it was a, it was a great opportunity, but I didn't look at it. Oh, I've made it. This is it for me. I, you know, I'm playing with Sammy Hagar. That's it. I don't have to do anything. I never looked at it like that. Healthy attitude, to say the least. And one of the things that I asked you about yesterday, but not in depth, is that you are also distinctly the only person I can think of besides the Van Halens and Michael Anthony to have played with David Lee Roth, given that you did a couple of the songs on Eat em and Smile. A thing that I didn't ask about, because you mentioned how Ted Templeman was instrumental in making that happen, is he used a few keyboard players on that record. Was it that somebody wasn't available and you got it, or you were only available a couple of days? I don't really know. Um, I mean, uh, I, I was just there. I was there the, the whole time, I thought. But, you know, albums go on for a long time, and a lot of times you can think that things are done and... Uh, and then you realize later on when you're mixing or whatever that you have to add something. I can't remember who else he used on there, but I think I was the first guy in. I don't remember there being any keyboards. But the other thing I can say about Ted Temple then is Ted it was a really good producer, but he wasn't the kind of producer that would um, tell you what to play. In other words, what he his strategy, and actually he wrote a book about it. You know, he's got a book out which is, and said really nice things. I got to say about about uh, my my whole experience. But um, he wasn't the kind of guy that would tell you what to play. He would get the best players and try to get them to be creative. But if something wasn't right for him, it just didn't end up on the record. Like I played on more tracks, but some of the stuff just didn't get on the record. And I, I that's nothing wrong with that because Ted Temple is Ted Templeman. But but uh, so I'm not sure exactly how the whole process went down. But I can tell you that uh, after um, you know the whole thing was over, and this is kind of a funny story to me, is that uh, we, it, when we were kind of wrapping up everything, we're all hanging out and and. Uh, um, Dave said to me, Jesse, you know, look, you're one of us. And, uh, I, you know, do you want to be in the band? And I said, well, uh, I knew this is a trio and, you know, they didn't have a keyboard in Van Halen. So I said, well, Dave, am I going to be on the stage or off the stage? And he said, well, start out with, you're going to probably be off the stage. And, you know, I'd just been with Sammy and I was trying to learn how to write songs on my own and everything. So I said, well, I don't know, Dave, let me think about it. And he never talked to me again. 
So, I wow. mean, it was, uh, he was obviously insulted, but I wasn't trying to be insulting. It was just, yeah, I was just trying to figure out what was best for me. And it was really good for Brett Tuggle, who I've already said is a great guy and really good player and everything. So Brett, you know, uh, really made something out of it. But um, at any rate, so I have to say it wasn't because I wasn't accepted by those guys, because I definitely was. So I don't really know what happened in the whole process of recording, but I can say after that day, I, d- I never talked to Dave again, except for when we did the Sam and Dave tour and then we did speak and he was nice. That is very interesting right there. Did you ever see the VH1 documentary kind of special they did on the Sam and Dave tour? Well, I don't know if I ever watched it, but I was there for the whole thing. I mean, uh, I don't, you know, I was thinking about it. I know I said, Hey, if you want to know anything about that ask, but, Really, there was a lot of stuff that went down on that whole tour. I could really write a book about it. Uh, it was one of the most fascinating experiences in my in my whole uh, musical uh, uh, thing. It was way the, by far the most interesting Sammy tour we ever did. Uh, so, uh, let's see. What did you just ask? Well, I was asking if you saw the VH1 special they did. Now, can I give you the background on it so you understand where I'm going with this? Okay. Okay, okay. so VH1 did kind of a past-present special where they took all sorts of archival clips of Van Halen's success, Dave quits the band, he goes solo, Sammy joins the band, success, he's fired, him and Dave are slagging each other over the years in the press. It's very sensationalized. Then shows how they Uh have the press conference and they say, man, this this is great, you can't capture this energy, we're the guys. And it must be that VH1 only followed them for one or two dates because all of a sudden it cuts to in the middle of the tour about Sammy showing how you guys are all in this tiny dressing room because Dave took it, uh, the big dressing room before he could get there. And this wasn't the agreement and it's a disaster and they hate each other. And then it kind of smash cuts to Dave being on the bus with his arms around the ladies and saying something like, Sam likes to throw a party. I am the party. And it just never shows Mm -hmm that they ever talked to each other, that Michael Anthony played with both artists or anything like that. And that kind of shaped Uh everyone's narrative that, oh, okay, they got together, they didn't get along the end. And I was wondering if there's more to that story. There's a lot more to that story. Um, And the part of the the story was that they were filming that that special. And the original uh, plan was for Sam and Dave to do a show together on MTV, uh, you know, kind of like, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, they were going to share experiences, but, uh, both of those guys are very competitive. You know, I really know Sammy better than I know Dave, but Sammy was very competitive with Dave, especially. And as things time went on, there was a lot of maneuvering. Uh, and you know, Dave is a real smart guy. He's, he knows how to, and he's probably was more media savvy than, than as far as MTV went than Sammy was at the time. And he really, you know, got, got in some good licks there, uh, as, as the, the, they started filming the show. And so the whole thing really blew up. Uh, and I think it was more that, you know, when two people go into an arrangement, uh, each person is thinking how it's going to be, how it's going to end up in their favor or how it's going to be. And it, when it doesn't, it d- didn't develop that way, I think for either one of them. And so that's what caused the tour to, to tour to blow up. Uh, I don't think that they ever really liked each other. Uh, but you know, both of them are smart guys. And I think they saw a good business arrangement developing, but 
It's just they couldn't get past the personal stuff. It looked like the arenas were packed, or the amphitheaters, rather, were packed every night, that business was good, that everyone was happy with the shows, whether they were a Dave guy or a Sam guy, where tour vibes at least good on that end? Like the money wasn't Mm -hmm. a mess and the attendance was good and all that? Well, okay, I'm going to say something, but uh, this this is is, – uh, was really sad uh, when it was Sammy that canceled the tour. And when he did, there were a lot of people on tour. That tour was doing great. We were supposed to go take it to Japan or Europe. And, uh, uh, but Sammy cut it off and a lot of people that we had a huge crew. I mean, like four semis out there and bu- five, six buses. It was just a big tour and it, it hurt a lot of people. And, uh, but the one person that didn't hurt is Sammy cause he had the most money out of anybody. Uh, so yes, you're right. It was a very successful tour from the tour standpoint. It was great. I mean, you got to hear the Van Halen songs, uh, that Sammy did. I mean, it was, it was, uh, the the audience that showed up was a Van Halen audience. You know what I mean? They weren't like a Sammy audience or, uh, uh, um, I'm just a gigolo audience. They were Van Halen fans. And, and so it was a great opportunity, I think for them, uh, and it was sad that it blew up, but it blew up. And um, uh, like I said, a lot of people, including myself, you know, we were making money. But uh, what are you going to do if you, you know, that's the thing about the music business. It depends on how much power you have over what's going to happen. It's, uh, it's the same from from writing a song to going on tour, being in a band. Uh, you know, it's all depends on how much power you have. And, and Sammy had most of the power at that point. And you can feel free to not answer this one. Sammy's put out in the past that when he decided to do the Van Halen reunion in 04, that he still paid his band for the summer tour that he canceled on that end. Now, I don't know the timeline. Is that, was that supposed to be your last tour with the band or? Let's see. What year was it? 04? It was 04, if I remember correctly. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in Sammy's book that is, I don't think is true. I mean, from a lot of, of places when I was there, I don't really want to get into specifics, but I'll just leave that one alone. I mean, I, I, you know, made money with Sammy, uh, but I also made money doing, uh, you know, in other uh, songwriting and other things. So it wasn't the end all of my career, but uh um, I don't really want to get that sounds nitpicky. Uh, I'll just no you know, problem. Let, let let's, him have that. And... Let's move on to back to you and the long mm-hmm. success that you've had and all that. So after your time with Sammy Hagar, what was your first like committed project? You mean uh, the first time or the second time? <laughs> I'm meaning the second time in the, in the 2000s because yeah. anyone who looks at your discography will be like, well, there's the song he did for Hard. Yeah, I, I you know, I uh, put together my own um, uh, album. Uh, my first inclination was to to just be a songwriter uh, for other people and also produce. You know, I'd produced and co-written the songs on Red Voodoo, which was a very successful album, and and I just felt at that point that. Uh, you know, people would call up and, and I could work with them. And, and also that's the part that I really like. I mean, I like touring and everything, but, but really to me, touring was just to publicize something that you had done in the studio. You know, the creative part was what I really like. When you play a show, 
uh, it's over and it's done. It, there's no, nothing that lasts with that. And a lot of times in a show, you can think you're terrible and the audience thinks you're great. So uh, it, it isn't really anything that you can, um, uh, I don't know, live with for a long time. Whereas you make a record and, and people can really see what you think is good and, and uh, you know, you're, it, it, it says more about you. So I thought that I was going to be able to do that. So I, I actually put together my own CD, basically with songs that I liked. A, a lot of times when you write a song, um, uh, it's, it, uh, things don't work out exactly as they should. Uh, and um, sometimes songs should be successful, but they don't get uh, to the right artist or, uh, I don't know, just things happen. And uh, so I had some songs that I thought were good that I liked. And, and uh, also I, you know, I had songs that had been on other people's records, but I thought there might be some interest in, in what my demos sounded like. So I kind of put together this, this CD on um, uh, just in my little home studio, kind of pieced it all together. And I also, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Brian Brinkerhoff, who was kind of a, a producer of some blues albums. He called me up. He, we were always buddies and he, and he, he used to work at Disney. And um, he said that he had an artist named guitar shorty uh, that was, you know, wanted to do or wanted to do an album. So I actually, uh, 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 Brian had another songwriter and we, the other guy and I wrote the, all the whole album for guitar shorty. And then we went in and recorded the album without his, his uh, being on there at all. Just uh, it was a really an interesting way to work. We just uh, recorded the tracks without any vocals or without even having the songs finished. And then we called Guitar Shorty up and he came up and and we uh, I recorded his voice and his guitar playing. And then I went uh, home with my Pro Tools and I kind of made the whole album happen. Uh, so those were the first two projects I did. But in doing that, I realized that, you know, in order to really be in the business and do that kind of thing, I really had to move back down to L.A. And I, I just at that point, you know, I have a family, I have young kids and I just didn't want it just wasn't worth it. You know, the music business is a, is a high risk business. You know, everything you do is like swinging for the fences. You know, you get up there uh, if you're a baseball player and you swing as hard as you can. Well, when you hit the ball, it goes over the fence. But most of the time you miss. So, uh, you know, it, it was the kind of thing where the risk was too high for the reward. And I just decided at that point that I didn't really need to be in the music business. I mean, uh, I, you know, done a lot. So that's when I bought my music store, which was, you know, kind of like a music school. We had about 20 teachers that taught there and we had rock band summer camps. And that was a, a beautiful thing because I got to interact with a lot of regular people then you don't really get to do that much when you're in the music business. That's an interesting point right so those there. Are uh, do you, in your everyday life, cross paths with a lot of the people that you were touring with in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? Or is it kind of like, that's the old Jesse, and every now and then a show comes through town, I go backstage, I say, hey, but I'm the new Jesse now. Well, it is kind of the old Jesse and the new Jesse. Uh, it, to my discredit, I'm really not good at keeping up with old relationships. Even like, you know, for instance, a guy like Dave Amato. We were really, really, really good friends. You know, when I was in REO Speedwagon, and even before that, he used to come over and play on demos for me. And uh, he was just a super great guy. We played baseball every Sunday. But I haven't talked to Dave in probably 20 years, you know, and it's not because I don't 
think that we're still friends. It's just that I'm really bad about that. And, and I think that's kind of how it is with a band is, is that when you're in a band, they become part of your family. You're hanging out with them all the time. And they may not be people that you would be friends with outside of the music business, but you find ways to be buddies. I mean, it wasn't really that way with, with, for instance, with Dave, we were really good friends, but other people I worked with, yeah, you know, probably wouldn't have been, we probably wouldn't have been real friends if it wasn't for the, the common uh, musical interest there. So no, I don't run across many people. But if I can uh, force a narrative on you, it sounds like it is a happily ever after kind of thing where the guy did not succumb to the music industry vices, that he did the big stuff, and then he got to be with his family and be a local mm-hmm. guy. <laughs> and it sounds mm-hmm. like a no regrets kind of scenario. Well, it is. I, it, I, yeah, I don't regret. And I'm very, very proud of my career. It's a, like I said, it's a tough business. Uh, but at a certain point, you know, to be quite honest, uh, you know, I was, I got to be a, a teenager for an extra 20 years of my life. Really? <laughs> incredible. Uh, so, but at a certain point, you know, uh, I'm kind of a, uh, you know, an introspective person. And I realized that, uh, if I just stayed on, on, on the road uh, and kept acting like a teenager, I was never going to grow up. And, you know, to be quite honest, most of the guys I worked with were either not married or divorced. If you were on the road, it's there. Everything that is fun on the road is bad for you. If you have a family, I'll just leave it at that. So uh, I realized that that uh, I wanted to to move on and grow up and be a whole person. And part of that, I think, is is having kids and having a wife and and settling down and all that. I think that's an important part of, of living. It isn't just. You know, I mean, the music is fun and it's a great way to make a living and everything. But but I, I just could see I didn't want to be, uh, you know, uh, I didn't want to miss out on that whole part of life. So, yeah, I did. I did make a lot of concessions to having a family. I mean, I always tell everybody that when I got married, you know, uh, my marriage was going up then my career went down. You know, it's just kind of like they were they they it's really hard, I think, to um unless you're the, the a millionaire rock star that can afford to bring his family out on the road and, you know, that kind of thing. But then it's not fair to the kids either. You know, I, for instance, with my kids, I wasn't going to push them into being in the music business. They got a chance to come out on the road, fly around on Sandy's private jet and go to big concerts and see all of the best part of the music business. This is how good it could be. But if they didn't, you know, fall in love with that and want to do that, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to force, force them, you know, and both of my kids have college degrees, they have advanced degrees and, and I'm proud of that, you know, that I didn't, I didn't make the music business be my entire life. Being very respectful of your time here, new music, uh, is it coming out? Is it on the website or any idea the best way that everyday people can check it out? Yeah. You know, I'm not really selling anything right now. Um, when you're young, you can write songs about chasing girls and cars and uh, drugs or whatever, but really I don't feel that now at, at, at my stage. And so finding things that are relevant to me to write about uh, and uh, might be relevant to other people, it's difficult. And uh, you know, for me uh, uh, it's always been very personal that a song has to have a reason to exist. It's like just writing a song for some random fake idea that's never really appealed to me. I, you know, I, I want, you know, the songs to mean something to me, but I also want them to mean something to other people. So uh, I don't know at this point I am, 
I'm just kind of trying to uh, experiment and and have fun with things. And and so, you know, for for instance, you know, when I worked with that guy, Guitar Shorty, I realized, you know, the guy was like 63, but he was still playing the blues. I realized there are certain types of music where you can age and people think, oh, this is, you know, this guy really has experience. The blues classical music you know you can go and hear a classical pianist that's in his 70s and you say wow that guy really you know understands music uh jazz but rock is not one of those things that really ages well uh so uh you know i I, when i started to do uh you know songs of my own more bluesy stuff i just it just felt a little more appropriate so that's kind of the direction it may not be uh you know uh what I'm really the best at, or I don't, I, you know, or, 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 um, you know, what would be the most successful, but it's kind of like something I can relate to at this point. So uh, I don't, re- but, but I'm still trying to figure that out, whether I want to put it on a website or um, I mean, I do share tunes right now, but it's more, I think it's more just trying to figure out whether they're good or not. <laughs> 